remember feeling like she traded her life in for mine almost because she'd she'd taken away so much of my pain and it was so sad that she couldn't reach out that one last time um, because I really think if she had maybe you know she would still be here and she could have helped so many other people and she's yeah I just wish she wasn't in so much pain I wonder what you mean when you use the word I use the word I Welcome back, everyone. I'm your host, Mitch Wallace, and I'm excited to be sharing yet another story with you today. This one is very personal for me and got pretty raw in some places. My guest today is the amazing Catherine, who has just turned 18 and is in her final year of high school. She's very generously shared her experiences as a young person who went through a period of severe mental ill health. I'd actually never met Catherine before we sat down for this chat, but we already had something in common. About a year ago, we lost an incredible young woman named Alana, who was like a big sister to Catherine and a little sister to me. Uh, Alana was my best friend's little sister, and I've been involved with her and her family for a very, very long time, and it was beyond devastating, to say the least, to see her pass. Catherine and I had a beautiful conversation, and it was a real honor for both of us to hold space for the memory of a person that we love dearly. We talked candidly about our recollections of Alana and the impact her passing continues to have on each of us personally and her close family, particularly her brother, my best mate. After someone dies by suicide, those left behind can sometimes live in a wake of shame, guilt and fear of not being enough. In this chat, we unpack some of those feelings and we pledge to do what we can to make her proud to let her live on through us, and we promise to serve and save as many others as we can who live with potentially lethal amounts of mental anguish. Catherine, in her own right, is a very impressive young person who's clearly learned and overcome a lot in her um, relatively short life so far. I was surprised but wrapped that I could geek out on mental health theory with an 18-year-old in such a incredible way for um, for her to be able to understand very complex topics. There is no doubt that she is destined for great things, and I'm really proud to be able to bring our conversation to you today. Trigger warnings for this episode does include uh, references to suicide um, and a bit of an exploration and discussion. So if this triggers you, I would encourage you to pause and wait till you're ready or perhaps listen to the episode with a trusted person. As always, go slow, go strong, one day at a time, we're all on the journey. (music) 
so I'm very, uh, very grateful and, and honored to, to be doing this um, because Alana was a big part of my life, uh, not just directly, but because obviously her brother is my best mate and like a brother to me. And I know that Alana was like a, a sister to you. And so I just want to really honor the space that we're creating for both of them in our mutual relationships to people that we care about. So thank you for being willing to go through not only your journey, but the impact that other people have on our lives when we lose them. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm going to just start off by saying, I think that you're the youngest person we've ever spoken to about their mental health story. And um, I've only spoken to you over email and we've gone back and forth, but just the way you write about what you've been through, let alone um, speak about it, is incredibly mature for your age. Uh, have you always been someone with a, this level of maturity? Um, um, I suppose it's probably grown after my experience with having dealt with this kind of things, but um Mm. Yeah, it's probably grown after that. But again, also thank you so much for having me today. Of course, of course. And and you've just uh, finished school and you're jumping on an interview to talk about <laughs> a pretty serious topic. Uh, and it's it's something that I don't think, particularly for young teenagers, gets talked about enough. Um, how would you describe yourself as a teenager? Are you sporty or academic? Are you quiet? Are you outgoing? Um, now I'd probably, oh, now I'd probably describe myself as kind of normal. Like I, I do a bit of sport <laughs> here and there, but then I'm, I'm probably a lot more outgoing than people would have thought I was a few years ago, but outgoing is my personality, I think. And um, what? Yeah, I like art, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> What's it like describing yourself as normal? Did you ever think that that would be the case? Um, honestly, when I was a kid, I probably had a bit of an overinflated sense of ego. Like I would have probably characterized myself with all of these other qualities, but I think coming to look at myself today, it, I am just another person. Um, you know, just like everybody else. And I think, you know, as kids, we probably all have a little bit of a heightened sense of importance as well. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The world revolves around us as, as kids. Uh, it's not until you get into the big wide world where you get a reality check and you're like, oh, I'm, it's not that you think that I'm not important. You're just as important as everyone else, I guess. Yeah, exactly. And I think as well, when I was a kid, like I started off as the first because I'm the eldest of five. But um, as my four younger siblings all came along as well, it was really learning to share that energy in that space and realizing that, yeah, just because, you know, the attention is divvied up, it doesn't mean any of us are less important. Totally. <laughs> and how old yeah. are your siblings? Um, they are oh. <laughs> there's a lot of them here we go this is gonna um, test yeah <laughs> yes i know i better know this stuff um i've got anastasia she's nine yes genevieve she's 12 james is 14 isabella 16 and i'm i just turned 18 last week what's it like being the big sister do you feel a sense of responsibility there <laughs> definitely and i think that's a big part of my mental health journey as well but um 
I mean, I also probably don't know any different. It's just the way it is. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Do you remember when your first sibling was born? What, you would have been three? I was two, actually. So she's, yeah, no, I would have been about two-ish. I don't remember a lot, but I do remember the first time my parents told me I was going to have sisters. They're like, because she's relatively um, close her birthday is really close to mine so they were like oh we have you a birthday present I was like oh great awesome like a toy like awesome they're like oh it's a little sister and I yeah I mean it was really exciting (laughs) but I also I I don't know I didn't really know what to expect and then after that um you know each one came along and they've been probably the greatest gifts I've had even though they can be crazy sometimes very crazy (laughs) of course of course all siblings can be crazy in a love and hate relationship. I'm sure everyone can uh, can feel the same way about that. And your <laughs> family is um, a typical Aussie family with a, a Chinese background. Is that right? Uh, yeah. So my mom is oh, many generations Australian. Like um, you know, just she's been here. I think maybe of Irish background. We've been here mm-hmm. for a while. And then dad, um, he's the first generation that lived here in Australia and he's from Malaysian background, but he moved when he was pretty young. So we're a pretty typical Aussie family. I'm just, yeah, I'm just ethnically half Chinese. And it, does your dad do any of the cooking? And if so, I'm jealous. Tell me all about it. Oh, uh, yes. <laughs> Actually, I kind of, I think I, I don't appreciate it enough sometimes. So you have a really big range of food that we eat and mum cooks a lot of Asian dishes as well. So We've got a really good mix in between there. Mm. And how are you feeling about the HSC? I, I know for me, probably the most stressful year of my life. Um, <laughs> it was was the year of my HSC. I still, by the way, have reoccurring dreams that I'm in year 12 and I'm about to sit the HSC. Oh, and serious? it's like a nightmare. I just put so much pressure on myself uh, unnecessarily. And I look back now and I just petrified my psyche to believe that this would determine the rest of my life. And I think that's the social narrative around, um, and for those international listeners, the HSE is the final year exams for finishing high school. Um, and not every country does it the way that Australia does in that you you get a mark that determines your ability to get into university as opposed to some other countries do it where you finish school and that's your education and then you can elect to do an exam that benchmarks you to the rest of the population if you do choose to go to uni. And I'm a huge um, uh, resistor to the current system because forcing people to be um, to be uh, measured against their peers without their consent, without even telling you that I want to go into tertiary education seems completely unnecessary. Just let us do the exams to finish school and then think about the next step. And also, um, as a society, I get that we need to make sure kids focus and apply themselves at a young age because you want to give yourself the best chance possible. And when you're super young, you don't have the foresight to be able to say, um, 
oh, like I, I wish I had tried harder. So your parents and the people around you, like your teachers, need to prevent you from feeling a sense of regret. But I think we swing so far on the other side, which is making kids believe that this number is going to define their identity and that you have to carry it as like I was a 71.9 student or a 90 or a 50 and that that either makes me dumb or smart forever and I think that's completely unnecessary and very, very toxic. Yeah, no, 100%. And that's really funny that you said that because, um, I mean, funnily enough, it's been a pretty good year for me with my HSC, but that's only because I had a really rough time, I think, back in my younger years with my grades. So um, it's a bit of a long story, but in short form, um, when I was in year seven, my mum and dad had really big uh, marital conflicts. So um, it was a really hard time at home. Uh, But I remember saying to myself in that time as well, there's going to be two things I focus on because I know that I'm going to be distracted with what's happening at home. But the two priorities I'd set to myself in year seven were there's my family and getting them back together. (laughs) And (laughs) it was my study and my grades. And for about four years, I pretty much upheld that. So, you know, it wasn't a very good home situation at all, but they were there and together. And, um, well, I mean, I thought I upheld that. That was really my parents choosing to stay in that relationship. But, um, I, you know, I, I tried to do it a lot to prevent them from divorcing. I was really scared of that. And then also with my grades, I would just study, study, study. So um, that, this happened in my really early first couple of months of year seven. And so the few friends that I'd made at school already, um, I kind of just push them away a lot and to this Mm. like yeah that was hard so and then I would just study at lunch times and I'd get home from school and just sit there and study for hours and I was an all-a student up until year 10 and that pretty much defined my identity so when I started having really debilitating mental health problems um, and my grades started falling particularly maths and stuff that was a really big hit to me because it was like well all I have left now is my grades and even that is failing me now. So so what do I do? And I, I remember with my year 10 exams, that was probably the most stressful exam period of my life because I remember um, my teacher telling me as well, oh, this is for your ROSA, this is, you know, it counts for your year 10 exams, which is basically if you want to continue, um, it's with like, you know, jobs in the future, it goes on your resume and stuff. So they were really Mm. emphasising how important it was, just like you were saying. Um, And I think at the time it was such a big trigger for me because I was so scared of kind of losing my mind to mental illness and especially my ability to work through my grades and stuff that, yeah, it was a really horrifying prognosis for me looking, yeah, looking down that track and thinking, oh, I'm not going to be able to do these exams because I can't. I can't think properly right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, that was really the, actually the peak of my mental health problems were in year 10 because it was, you know, the, it was, yeah, there were a bunch of factors that led to it. But um, since then I've really been able to come pull myself through and um, through the help of everybody around me, it hasn't really been me at all. Credit to everyone around me. Um, but this has been really good because after learning to deal with those changes, I've been able to adapt to the HSC this year 
And so I think as well, after a lot of kids after coming through the HSC will probably realise that they put way too much pressure on themselves, as you probably realised yourself. But mm. definitely having this massive mark overhanging everything, um, especially your job, is really scary for a lot of people. And I definitely see that in my peers now. But I think, definitely. yeah, just got to remember that it doesn't mean everything. And, um, yeah, it really, it really doesn't. And it's crazy how much pressure we put on ourselves. Just yeah, pressure is the, the, the word that, that struck me when you were explaining what was going on in both, both of your goals are very, very high pressure goals um, <laughs> is the first observation I had in that your parents' marriage and, and your, and your um, grades, not just getting good grades but getting the best grades. And what was another interesting thing is one of your goals was not only completely out of your control, i.e. your parents' marriage, uh, but something that as a child can actually probably do damage if you felt as though the outcome of what happened in that marriage that you had to carry personally. <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. And, and do you think, and I want to explore that a little bit, but one question I have is do you think that those two things caused your mental illness or just aggravated something that was already there? Um, well, that's a good question. I was very, really young when this all happened. So by the time I realized it was a problem, it was hard to look back, but I think it was, it was mostly those two. Um, it was mostly that, which was playing off parts of my personality already, which are, you know, I'm a big sister. So we have to make sure that this is what's happening. Like I have to make sure I look after my siblings, which means keeping my parents together, which is what I thought at the time. Yeah. And a lot of it as well, my mental health issues then came from the environmental situation I was in. So it's kind of a combination of these factors I had um, playing into what I thought I had to do and then what mm -hmm. was happening at home to reflect that. And then the fact that I was also putting stress on myself at school, it was like there was no kind of break from all this kind of stuff that was happening. It was just constant Yeah, a huge stress. sense of responsibility. Um, in all domains. And do you remember what age you've started to feel like your mental health challenges um, were arising? Um, yeah, most poignantly it was probably um, in year nine. But I remember even from year seven, I, I think I had an awareness that stuff at, my, in, at home wasn't quite right. But um, I'd always try and tell myself that it was like you know all families kind of go through these things but it was it now looking back it really wasn't it was constant fighting day in and day out um and you know I don't think they meant to expose us to that but there was you know emotional manipulation and all these things that as kids were really difficult to watch for um two of the loved ones in our lives like they were yeah fighting and causing each other so much pain so um yeah. What 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 would you say? Did you notice something in yourself, or did other people notice something in you where you're like, "Shit, something's not right." Um, I probably noticed something in myself first, and so I remember um, one Christmas with my cousins. Um, my cousins are like my best friends because obviously, and they still are. I love them so much, but at school it was pretty hard. So. I remember they were playing in the pool, which is something that I love doing. I'm an absolute water baby. I love the water. Um, 
and I just didn't want to go in and I couldn't, yeah, I couldn't get out of my own head. Um, and I went in and I, I just couldn't enjoy myself. And that was really, really odd for me. And I remember coming out of the pool and telling mum, like, something's wrong with me, mum. Like, like, I can't, I can't feel happy. And I had, mm. and then I came to the realization I hadn't felt happy in a really, really long time, but I kind of put on this face because I know knew my mom and dad were under so much stress ready. I didn't want to further put a burden on that. But I realized at that point that something was really wrong aside from all these other flashing things um, like my school and my friends. And like, that was the first thing that occurred to me that was really wrong with myself. I was like, I haven't felt happy in such a long time. It's a problem. Mm. Did that make you um, feel frightened or confused where you're like, whoa, hold on, that that realisation must have been quite overwhelming? Um, Sort of. It kind of, to be, so I know they didn't mean to do this, but, um, and and, my mum and dad are the most amazing parents ever, but everybody makes mistakes. And I think part of that was that they didn't realise what I was going through at the time. So they were like, you're kind of being dramatic sort of thing. I would come home from schools a lot of days and just not be able to do anything. I would just lie in my bed for hours and I I physically couldn't bring myself up to do anything. Like it was no energy and I would just cry and cry for hours and I wasn't sure why and I couldn't stop it either, which is so out of my character. I I don't really cry at all. But um, they were just like, oh, you're just being dramatic. It's just a teenager thing. So for a long time I went on believing that it was just because I was a teenager and hormones and, you know, definitely Mm -hmm. maybe part of it was that, but I didn't actually – worry a lot about it until it became really really bad so yeah yeah and I'm sure a lot of uh, and I, I know personally I've heard this from a lot of parents that you it's so hard to know when it's just natural kid and or teenager stuff or if it's something more serious and clinical and by I think a lot of kids if it does turn out to be something more serious and clinical go, you know, oh my God, my parents could have, should have, which I don't get that impression from you. I don't feel like you're in a sense of blame at all. In fact, you just said how much you love them um, and that you understand. But I think that it's common for parents to carry a sense of guilt when it does end up being something worse because they're like, oh, I wish I acted more um, accordingly to the significance of this. And so I know that this is a big question, but as a child, what would you say to parents that if they're not sure whether it's their child being dramatic and they don't want to feed into it or if it's something serious? Oh, yeah, no, that's a really big one because you're absolutely right. Still to this day, my parents expressed to me so much. They say sorry that I, I said that about, you know, that it was dramatic and I'm sorry I couldn't do more because I think a lot of the time when mental health issues occur in kids, it's because... It can be because of an underlying like family issue or they've witnessed mental health and parents and stuff. And so the analogy I like to use in terms of my situation was that my parents' conflict, we were all kind of like, we were all kind of in a sinking boat. So they couldn't really help me a lot. They didn't recognise my pain, I don't think, as much as they could have because they were dealing with their own stuff, which is applicable to most people, I think. Everybody is going through their own stuff and it's hard sometimes to realise that, you know, this subtle change in the kid's behaviour could be indi- indicating, you know, something really gloomy. But I think for parents, um, the main thing is um, 
yeah, you can't blame yourself because it's so hard to tell. But um, at the same time, you have to be aware of aware of it. And yeah, I think it's really, really good when parents begin to come on board with. Um, yeah, that's the best thing they can do is support their kids. So, but yeah, don't yeah. blame yourself either because it's so hard. Even as like I remember as well, even as a person going through it to see my parents who I loved so much um, suffering because they felt like they didn't do enough was also really hard. So the best thing you can do is take care of yourself, which means forgiving yourself that you didn't recognize it earlier. And yeah, I don't know how to explain it. It's hard. No, you've explained it well. That's an enormous question, something that psychologists would struggle to, to answer. And I wasn't I wasn't wanting you to, to come up with something perfect or textbook or I just wanted to hear your raw thoughts because what it might do is give other parents that are listening to this a, an insight into what their own child might be thinking. And yeah. it doesn't mean that their child's necessarily right or that they get to call the shots, but it does give them an understanding as to what the child might be thinking. And I, I think my my opinion on this would be uh, parents should keep a mindset of innocent until proven guilty or said another way real until proven otherwise in that you don't get to determine what is significant to someone else or not. And so assume that if they say it's significant, it is significant. Now that's step one for me. And step two would be use boundaries to regulate and modulate that, um, that realness. So if someone says it's real and I'm really struggling I would, I would believe that as a default and then it's not then you go between believing and disbelieving. It's I believe it but I'm also then not going to just get absorbed in this and freak out because that wouldn't be helpful for you either. Mm. And I think that sometimes even when it's believed, whether or not you're freaking out but sometimes parents can become so over-involved that they start walking on eggshells around their children and then that just perpetuates the child's sense of, oh, shit, something is really, really wrong. And or if bad behavior comes as a result of this, I have an excuse because apparently I'm just hurting. And so the eggshells isn't good either. So I think on either side of the spectrum, whether it's eggshelling around someone because they don't want to hurt in, in the fragility, even if it's not good for the child's personal development or behavior monitoring, but then completely dismissing it and telling someone that they're overreacting and validating their feelings isn't the right way to go either. I think it's assuming always that if it's significant for this person, it's significant for this person. And then keeping a level-headed approach to be able to be contagious with calm and then be the child supporter along that without numbing out or freaking out. How does that sit with you? Yeah, no, that's definitely, that sounds definitely like, yeah, spot on exactly because, yeah, if a parent is freaking out, the kid looks at their parent and they kind of do the same thing, which is obviously yeah. going to amplify the problem um, for somebody um, going through the problem at the issue, which did happen to me on a few occasions. But I think it's always new waters for any parents that are navigating a mental health problem right. with their kids. So it's like, particularly a firstborn like you, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and like me as well. Mm. And so it, it can be really frightening for them and I, I think I did always understand that. But, yes, even to put on that, um, just, yeah, to have that calm is really good not only for, I think, yourself but 
for another person going through it. And I say that now as well from being someone who's, I have friends and um, family members that have been through a similar thing and keeping level-headed is really, really important. And another thing that you mentioned before was um, uh, validating but not letting people push boundaries as an excuse to oh, because like to say, oh, because I have this, this disorder, I'm now allowed to do this. Um, and I think that's mm. very applicable because in terms of mental health disorders, I think a lot of people gravitate towards depression, which is what I had. But in having lots of siblings as well, I also realised that grief and trauma can be expressed not only in that but also in anger, which is a oh, different... Yeah. Oh, definitely. So I was probably mm. more to the end where I was you know, depressed and keeping stuff in, but other people that I've seen have responded to that by um, projecting all this anger and hurt outwards, which makes it really hard to help someone if they're being absolutely horrible to other people. Because, um, you know, how do you help Couldn't someone? I said it better myself. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I, I think it's recognising that people don't have an excuse for having this poor behaviour um, as a response to the issue, but I think in educating parents about it, part of that is realising that it's not all just the kid being an absolute jerk. It's There's this underlying problem that needs to be looked at as well. Agree. And and even as an adult, man, like I, I, I still, and I'm not a parent, but even with my own friends, this is such cannot stress this enough, such an important life lesson that plays out in my everyday, which is how do you see someone's story and separate that from behavior? You know, whether I'm talking to a CEO of a multinational or talking in my own friendship circle, people always ask, you know, well, do I just let that go because they're in pain? No, no. Um, But similarly, uh, do you not see the story and just blame the behavior? No, like both of those aren't great. You can absolutely see someone's pain, appreciate their story, try and understand someone, even if you don't agree with the behavior or endorse it or blah, blah, blah. And I think parents, um, business leaders, etc., they're like, oh, if you have a mental health issue, now you're just like have free reign. No, that's not good. Mm-hmm. It's not helpful for you because you'll start resenting them, but it's not helpful for them because you can say to someone, I see you and I hear you and I'm there for you, but hey, here's what's okay and here's what's not okay Mm -hmm. because it's the absence of that second part and it's the absence of the regulation of behavior on top of that, which isn't going to help the person in pain because they then will adopt behaviors that will push other people out of their life and end up hurting them in the long run. Um, And also, you start to um, almost lean into the narrative of pain because this is a way that I get control and manipulate my life. So, oh, people are letting me do this. Now the depression, anxiety, personality disorder, whatever it is, is helping me achieve my outcomes. And so I'm going to embody the narrative more. I'm going to embody the pain more because people are okay with this behavior. So it's actually counterproductive to either completely put together story and behavior or completely um, separate them. We have to be able to acknowledge the story and 
see the behavior as as separate in that you don't have to walk on eggshells, but appreciate their linkage. And for those that are like, this sounds like a very mutually exclusive topic and they sound like they're counterpoints, um, listen to my podcast with Dr. Dan Siegel on my other podcast called Understood by Mitch Wallace. He explains the definition of mental health is called linked differentiation, which is um, separate but together. So in order not to confuse someone now, I think hopefully people understand that you can see someone's story and their pain, validate that, appreciate it, even if you haven't been there yourself, but then also be have boundaries and regulate someone's behavior and its effect on you by not being aggressive, but, but by just being clear and transparent and what we call assertive, which is staying firm in how something affects you. Mm. Yeah, 100%. There's like this kind of dance of being able to, you know, provide the person with support, but also um, protect yourself at the same time. And you said it so eloquently, but um, I find it funny because it parallels my experience. I think a lot of my family members and myself in the past, we've seen things in a really black and white worldview, as in it's either Mm -hmm. this person is doing something bad or or they're hurting, but not the same thing. And I think sometimes, Mm -hmm. I think, you know, it's really easy to look either because, you know, humans kind of like yes or no answers, not that kind of complex in between. Um, and But that's kind of exactly what mental health is. It's really complicated and that's why it's such a difficult issue to understand and treat. Um, and that's, yeah, like you said, that's why we need to talk about it more, I think. Agree. And I can't believe I can geek out to this level with an 18-year-old. I can't <laughs> even get this type of conversation going with my 30-year-old friends or... <laughs> Even, you know, 50-year-old people. So the fact that you're tracking and contributing in the way that you are, I think just shows how much work that you've done and how committed you are to yourself in working through uh, your own crap and, and making sense of it with some real rationality and, and, you know, hats off times 100 to you. So you mentioned that the, the depression has kind of been your... Um, your demon, your main demon. And so uh, you, you found yourself coming home um, feeling noticeably sad to the point of tears. You found yourself withdrawing from friends. You found yourself um, uh, becoming isolated and insular and closed off. When do you, do you remember a point where it escalated to the point where you're just like, hey, I'm out, I cannot cope? <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh boy. Talk to me about that. Um yeah, so um yeah, the coming home thing and just not being able to do anything was kind of year nine and then slowly like you said the friends were the first thing to go and then I started dropping up from all my sports really slowly but like it was like almost erosive. So I had uh, I was diagnosed four years after I kind of started developing these symptoms with severe depression and anxiety. But um, so, yeah, it was really worse. It started, everything started kind of ticking away and all I was left with in the end is kind of my grades and that started falling away too. And so what ended up happening was I was, I was sitting in the car one day and I was going to go to my one sport I had left, which was swimming. And I just remember thinking about my exams and I kept thinking, 
because um, I put all my effort and my time into these assessments and stuff. And I just remember thinking, gosh, I hate doing this so much. I just want it to all be done. And I know that I can finish this next task, but after that there's going to be another one and another one and another one. And I remember thinking as well, that's, that's life. Like there's going to be one challenge and there's going to be another one and another one after that. And I remember sitting in the car and there were so many things running through my head. That was a really big simplification, but I remember just thinking, um, I feel awful and apparently this is just normal. This is just the way teenagers feel. This is just the way people feel. I, I don't know if I can do this anymore. And I remember thinking, I don't want to be here anymore. Um, not necessarily that I wanted to take my life, but I just remember being so exhausted that I, yeah, I just sat there. I just didn't want to do it anymore. And that it was, yeah, it was really, really hard. Um, but I'm still here, so that's good. But basically that was kind of a turning point in terms of, um, yeah, I think that's what made my mom really realise that I was really sick was when I, I did finally say, you know, I don't, I don't want to keep, I don't think I can keep doing this anymore. Like I don't, I wish, you know, I wish I wasn't alive right now. Mm. Um, yeah. And what happened next when you said that to your mum? Um, yeah, no, so she kind of freaked out, um, which, you know. Understandably. Exactly, understandably. And I was so scared for a long time to tell her that, but I felt at that time I had to. Um, and so basically what happened was, um, you know, I've got five siblings, so every afternoon is sport chaos. So I went with my mom instead of staying back to study, I went with her to all of my siblings' things and she just put me onto all of these helplines. So like, you know, the kids' helpline, um, all those kind of things. Because prior to that, mom had been my kind of my anchor in that. And she, I'd always, I'd speak to her for hours and hours about all the thoughts running through my head. And I know I'd be going on loops and loops, but I just think at that point, that's what my anxiety was kind of doing to my brain. It was making it spiral. So anyway, she put me onto all these helplines. Um, but I think my illness had progressed at that point so badly. It had gone undetected for so long that even talking out my pain with them didn't really help. Um, so, yeah. Um, and then this the whole um, issue became quite severe and it continued up until year 10, as I said, with my exams. Um, and... Um, yeah, it progressed to the point where I had like insomnia, which was really weird. I think I think I heard you say maybe that you've had a similar experience before, and I did listen to a couple of your podcasts before. But um, to anyone that's had it, they know it, it really sucks. And I just mm-hmm. night times probably one of the worst times for me with my mental illness, coupled with the morning, um, because you just sit there thinking about it, and there's nothing you can do, and you're so tired, mm-hmm. but you can't sleep. Um, and yeah it got to the point where it was really bad my mum many nights just I would just be on the floor and she'd just sleep on the floor next to me um and I would Mm. be lying awake it's absolute hell (laughs) it's not a good time but um yeah what ended up happening and the best thing for it I didn't see at the time was I went to hospital so I um ended up um having inpatient treatment and um I was on medications as well, which I guess, yeah, is a whole mm. another topic in itself. 
And and I want to talk about hospital. It's a really important stigma that we're going to break together right now. But um, (laughs) how did did you get there as in – did did you go to the GP and the GP said, I think you need to go to hospital? Did the ambulance come? How did that come about? Um, so thankfully, um, yeah, no, my mum ended up making that decision for me and my dad too, but I actually had been suggested it. It had been suggested to me a couple of times before um, as an option, but I didn't actually go until um, things got really bad. So... The reason I actually ended up going was because I had decided um, before my exams, I think, or after or something. I think it was after because I remember my exams were over, but I still felt absolutely terrible. And I don't know how to describe it to you. I love my family so much and there was no way in the world that I want to leave them. But it was so painful having that I don't know, the disease, I guess, that I just, I didn't want to live anymore. So I had a plan and I had written down paper and mm-hmm. um, my mom found that, thankfully. Thank God, because I'm still here and every day I'm grateful for that. Um, but that's when I was, that's when my mom decided to take the step to put, to um, sign me up for an inpatient stay. And the reason that that decision was really, really hard for my mum to make. And I've spoken to her recently about that. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think a big part of that, though, is um, the stigma around it. I think at that point, my mum, because I spoke to her so much, she realised how bad my problem was. But my dad um, at the time was also in a really bad headspace because um, of the problems within his marriage. He was he was the head of the family, like, like myself, taking on all this responsibility. And I think having myself there as well, going through this pain, it was really a lot to deal with. And I think he said all this stuff out of concern for me, but he, he, I became, I took on a lot of anxiety about going, a lot of his anxiety about going to hospital because he, um, what it would like an institution kind of thing. And I think, you know, dad, has an opinion about mental health and hospitals that is pretty common actually, especially in Australia. It's like, I, and I'm so scared going in there because I thought, you know, I'm going into a place filled with crazy people and I'm crazy. Yeah. And I was absolutely terrified. And I remember dad as well. Um, he was so worried about this whole mental health thing tarnishing my future career and my life like you know mm-hmm. it will constantly be a label associated with your name and that caused me so much anxiety for a long time but the reason I ended up going into hospital in the end was because I think there was still a will for me to live and I was like I at this point I don't care what is going to happen in the future because I don't even know if I can make it through this day I don't even know if I can make it now so that's where I ended up but yeah <laughs> that's that it's it's amazing i've been the exact same mindset and i think that there is at the time you think oh my god the universe couldn't be more evil there it's just breaking me to nothingness mm. but that's the point yeah, is yeah. that it's yeah. it's not until that you're broken with no ego left that you can actually start to heal because there's no defense system anymore that's keeping you sick. It's all those things, all the pressure and the shame and the guilt and all that stuff that's keeping you sick. It's when you finally surrender and go, you know what, 
maybe I am all these things and you start to let it in that the actual healing occurs and there's no way you would have gone to hospital unless you were at, at breaking point and I'm being the exact same. There's nothing left. There's no pride left to give whatever it takes mm-hmm. because as you say, God, if if I even have the luxury of this tarnishing my career one day, exactly, then, exactly. then let's fucking cross that bridge when it comes and it's a far <laughs> better option than anything else. Exactly. No, that was so weird. And I think pride is the perfect word there um, and that's why I prefer not to say, oh, you know, these are my qualifications today because that was absolutely what kept me so sick. It was like, oh, you know, in primary school, like, I had all these friends that I'd compare myself to beforehand. Like I was outgoing and popular and this and that and that. It wasn't until I realized that I wasn't any of those things and really fundamentally that was just, you know, my ego kind of thing that was holding me back from being well. And, yeah, it's, it's funny how you, um, it takes till breaking point to get to heal and to get really better because – and it's, all, it's bad because – you get people in these really vulnerable positions and they're right on the edge of healing. And I think they, if you're not caught at the right time, like my mum found my note, that could have been a really big waste of a life and of a person. And it's just unfortunate how, mm-hmm. how much it goes unnoticed and the stigmas around it, you know, make it worse. So there's a lot more conversation that needs to be had around. Yeah, I agree. Want- and I think that, I think that you would agree with me in that you would encourage people listening to this not to write a note and hope that it gets found because that's probably an unsafe practice. I would imagine that you'd be encouraging people to put your hand up and go talk to someone because it will change your life and it might be some short-term pain, but it is so worth it. Absolutely. That was my biggest, biggest regret. Please, anyone, anyone listening, please just don't do that. Um, I think I was so prideful at the time to seek out help. I didn't want to express that I was weak and I didn't think anybody could help me, but it can be done. And I was absolutely at that rock bottom. Um, but, yeah, it's totally 100% possible to recover and likely that you'll recover. You just have to keep going. And as painful as that sounds, um, yeah, especially when um, you're amidst it, it's like you're trying all these things, nothing's working, and it feels like you don't know when you'll get better or how long you'll have to deal with it, but you just have to keep trying because um, it does it does get better. There's a light at the end of the tunnel for sure. And was um, what do you think it was about hospital that allowed you to turn a corner? Uh, yeah, so that's where that's where my big sis Alana really comes into the story um, because hospital was the first time in a long time that I was separated from my environmental situation, which was home, which, um, yeah, like I, I was so worried about all the people in my family, my little sisters and brothers and my mum and dad. It was so hard to be able to heal and focus on myself when I was constantly surrounded by that as much as I love them I think trying to help them ended up taking away more from me um so I think it taught me the lesson that you have to be in a good space in order to help other people um you know that whole airplane analogy of put other people put your mask on first before you put other people's oxygen masks on it's on all the um the flight plane guides Mm. anyway side tangent um 
Yeah, no, definitely. But I think going to hospital, um, I had already started medication before then. Um, it was a big thing as well. I was terrified about taking it. I was like, no, no, I don't, I don't want to. But being being in hospital um, taught me that, like, you know, everybody there was also on stuff, but it also taught me that it doesn't make you fundamentally flawed if you're taking it. I realised as well mm-hmm. that it's kind of definitely more of a biochemical thing within my brain that was causing me to have these problems because even though I was removed from the home situation, I was still feeling this way for a really long time. Um, so I realised, yeah, I think your mind after being expre- um, exposed to so much trauma for a long time sets yeah, it sets chemicals in your brain a bit funny. All the neurotransmitters get a bit funny. So um, taking the medication was a really big step for me. And it was helped because um, of the examples I had when I was in hospital as well. Mm. And uh, so so I've heard a few things. One was getting into an environment that felt safe and, and safe for long enough that you were able to learn how to come back to that feeling of calm and self-regulation. Second thing was learning boundaries and not just how to fit your own oxygen mask before you help others, but to me there's a bigger learning in that, which is understanding what's not your responsibility at all. Yeah. Um, which is your parents' marriage. <laughs> yeah. And funnily, well, funnily enough, um, my parents actually decided to split when I was in hospital, so officially. And it was so weird because for all this, all these, you know, it was five years, four or five years, I was trying to get them to stay together. It was such a, but it was such a big relief. They finally said they wanted to, but I cried for like a couple <laughs> well, of days. the irony of life. I know. I, know. Life. I cried for like three days, but after I was like, oh my God, I, now there's some sort of certainty. I'm not, because I, I just remember they aged so much. They, they just, they were draining life out of, each other and it was horrible to watch and I just remember thinking now there's some sort of certainty like I know that they're gonna go their separate ways but at least yeah at least there's some sort of solid ground there we know what's happening instead of just having to go day by day with them fighting and not knowing if things are going to get better in the future so that was good and I think yeah um as well as that Oh, sorry. No, you go. <laughs> no, I was just going to say, just because I want, I want to make sure people are following crystal clear on this. Um, yeah. The safe environment, the boundaries, and knowing what's yours and what's not yours to hold. The medication, and it sounds like the stabilization of that medication when you got to hospital, and the changing of biochemistry, and then also the sense of being around people that understood you. Sounds like it was a big one, particularly. Alana, who was able to give you for the first time a sense of, wow, someone really gets it. Yeah. So, yeah, no, definitely. I remember when I first came into hospital because when I talked about my dad, I was really scared about all the people that might be there. I was scared that I was crazy and I was scared I was going in amongst crazy people. But as soon as I went into (laughs) hospital, I realized that was completely wrong because, um, yeah, no, I basically went into, there's like a common room there um, where you just kind of sit and chill. And Alana basically, I sat down next to her, she introduced herself and she was just like, you know what, I'm going to be, I see how frightened you are, um, but it's okay. And I know how scary it can be, but I'm going to look after you. And yeah, and, you, know, you call me big sis and um, yeah, I'm going to take care of you these first couple of days. And she took care of me the whole time, but 
yeah, she, for the first time, she validated what I had felt. I'd never shared it with anyone because of the shame I thought that would bring to myself and my family, (laughs) which is, you know, something we discussed at home. It was like, don't share it. But for the first time, I was kind of validated in the way I felt. And I thought for a long time that I was just, you know, going absolutely crazy. But she um, she really helps me out of that, my big sis. <laughs> yeah. Do you miss her? Every day. Every day. Mm. Yeah, me too. Why do you think she left us? And we might edit this part out, so feel free to speak openly and honestly. But I do want to know, why do you think that, she didn't make it and other people do um that's really hard i think before i kind of went through my own stuff i remember hearing a lot of things about people who had passed away and taken their lives and i remember my dad saying you know it's so selfish why would anybody kind of do that and i always kind of felt angry at the people that took their own lives because um you know it's like the people that left are left behind that go through all this pain. And so I used to think, yeah, like the reason the people that left us were weak or whatever. And, um, but <laughs> having been friends with Alana, um, for context, like she, you know, she's so, so headstrong, so supportive. She could do anything she put her mind to. She picked up the guitar in like three days in hospital after I showed her like two chords. She, she could do anything um and like physically she was so so strong and she was going through all of these other issues um with her own health and stuff as well and I can just say from being friends with her that people that that's completely wrong people that have made that decision people that are sick with mental health issues are not weak at all in fact it's almost like they've been kind of trying to be too strong for a really long time that it's ended up breaking them so I think the reason um uh, it's really really hard to say why um she isn't here with us today because she's the most deserving person to be alive and she brought so much to the lives of everybody she touched but um she would I just think she got to the point where she didn't see the light at the end of that tunnel and I think she hadn't reached out. So she passed away, um, Alana, the day before my birthday. Um, and I remember she sent me this message for my birthday. And I only realised kind of now that it was almost like a goodbye. She said to me, you know, you're going to live this amazing life. I'm so proud of you. Um, Blah, blah. And I was like, oh, she left me a voice message incidentally because I was at school and she couldn't talk to me during the day. But uh, yeah, and I just remember feeling like she traded her life in for mine almost because she'd she'd taken away so much from my pain. And it was so sad that she could reach out that one last time um, because I really think if she had maybe, you know, she would still be here and she could have helped so many other people and she's yeah I just wish she wasn't in so much pain yeah she's still here and I think that what's become very apparent to me is how how she lives on through you and how huge of a part she's played in your story and I mean 
you've already done great things, but there's something about you. You're going to help people. I can feel it. Um, and what I see in Brenton, her brother, she has given way more than even he realizes to him in terms of life lessons. Like he is the closest thing I've ever seen to an angel for me. He is like, literally I text him this morning (laughs) and blokes don't do this. And I just said, Hey, I just want you to know until the day that I die, I love you more than anything. And I will do anything for you because he is the most, he's the definition of rock solid relationship and the I've watched him change over the last 12 months since losing Alana I mean he was already beyond my wildest um dreams of what I could have in a mate but after losing Alana watching him go through that and work in his incredibly methodical crazy brain through what this means for him and trying to make sense for it he has become even more of an incredible person and I know without a doubt that's because she lives within him more than ever and I know that for him and many others in his family there are he they are left in a wake of pain that will be there forever in wondering what could have been and guilt and shame of not being enough. But I hope that they realize that Alana is still very much here in our hearts, helping all of us and that we will do everything we can to, to honor that and make her proud. Definitely. Actually, uh, I guess I just want to say, I don't know if this will be in the show or not, but the reason I also wanted to come on to here today is because part of, I think, the legacy and the gift she left me was the people um, in her life that she loved and that loved her. Um, and, you know, I think we're all made by the people that are around us, really. And she was such an amazing person. She had a lot of amazing people that influenced her life. So I guess um, part of the gift that she's given me is that I have her Instagram. I She taught me about all the people she loved. Um and I'll go into that in a bit, but I've been able to contact all these amazing people that were such a big part of her life that I knew about because she told me in hospital how much she loved everybody. Um, and I've been able to make all these amazing new friends, like her best friend, Jen. I haven't actually talked to Brenton. I saw him at the wake once, but I don't know. I think it was a bit scared. To, I think it was a bit scared to bring it up. I think it's always yeah. it's always a bit of a taboo topic, but I've also spoken to her mom and meeting you has been this absolute honour because she used to talk about you in hospital and she talked about Heart on My Sleeve. That's how I got here today and how much that changed her life. And I think talking about feeling like you're not enough, um, I think it's really the opposite. I think it's really she kept hanging on for so long she wouldn't have been here as long if she hadn't had all these amazing people around her. Correct. And I think as well, um, talking, you know, talking about your mate Brenton, um, um, Alana's brother, I think she she loved him so much. And I know that because <laughs> she'd talk about him all the time. Like he, her big brother, such a big influence on her. And I just wanted to say that today. Like she loved him. 
him so much. Um, and he was such a big influence on her. I think, I think um, Alana's mum and dad and her and Brenton and you guys were making her the person she was because she saved my life. And um, yeah, she's anyway, I just remember very poignantly she had this picture um, that she would do digitally on an iPad. It was so detailed. It was of Brenton on his motorbike <laughs> and it crashed. The program crashed like four times, but she would go back and do every minute detail of it every time because she wanted to give this gift to her big brother. I don't actually know if it ever got to him. I don't know. Um, yeah, I just don't know what she was able to tell people before she went, but I wanted to say today um, about all the people she loved so much because she told me that and you guys are yeah absolutely everything to her and I think that applies to most people that um you know it's such a terrible circumstance to lose people like that but I think all people that take their lives the reason why they stayed for so long um was because of the people they loved it's not an excuse for what they did um it was out of their pain but it caused so much pain as well but yeah I definitely if you feel like yeah it, it's not because you weren't enough it's just because of the amount of pain they were going through. That's why they made that choice, yeah. Well said. Um, yeah, that one hit pretty hard. And I can see him having a bit of a, uh, a bit of a tear right now when he listens to this because um, his motorbike is his happy place. And just after she died, he actually rode his motorbike to my house and he said that he went the fastest he's ever been going down a street, just trying to release some of the pain. And I think he had a moment with the, with her on that in that moment and it's amazing that she would try and draw him in his happy place because that's where she wants to remember him in a role and in a light of that he was an inspiration for her and that she looked up to him so much. Um, the last thing I gave to her was a uh, my old MacBook, or no, a hard drive from my MacBook because she was getting into DJing, so I gave her like a thousand of my songs. <laughs> she loved DJing and, um, so much. She told me about how you helped her with that. She was she called herself DJ Bowie and she like she loved that so much. Grace, great gift yeah. for her. Yeah. Um, we would go on lunches and like you, she just spoke so intelligently about psychology and mental health and wanting people to feel understood. And I think the lesson is that she was here longer than what she could have been. So let's look at the life that she had versus the time that she lost because um, we're all going to go one day. She just got there sooner. <laughs> and, um, yeah, one day we'll see her again. And in the meantime, uh, we'll try and keep as many here as possible and keep them happy while we're at it. That's just it, yeah. That's another thing it taught me. She, she taught me so many lessons even though she's gone. Um, I remember like when COVID started this year, somebody said to me like, it's like, oh, my gosh, I'm so scared. Anybody that – anybody like people here, they could die because of COVID any day now. And, 
I just remember thinking after I lost Solana, that's that's every day. That's with every one of mm. us. So if you want to tell someone you love them, if you want to tell someone you appreciate them, do it now because you don't know how long they've all gone. Um, and it's such a cliche thing. We all know it. But after losing my best friend and my sister, um, that's the biggest thing that I got from it today. Um, yeah, it's really important. Tell people you love them. If you want an internship when you finish high school, you got one. <laughs> oh, thanks, bitch. It's been an absolute honour to meet you. I think we're going to end there. I would say what's, what, what would you tell people who are struggling right now and what would you tell Alana if she was still here? Oh, um, people are, oh, the people that are struggling now, um, I know you can get through it and you have so much to bring to the world. So please, please don't let that go to waste. Um, and yeah, just, yeah, don't be afraid to express yourself, whether that be in art, music, and all with the people around you. Um, and for my big sis, Alana, um, I'm so proud of you. I would tell her, I would tell her I miss her every day. Um, um, and yeah, just the fact that I love her so much. I hope she knows that. Yeah, she does. We all do. And we will make you proud. I promise. Catherine, you're an incredible human and I'm very grateful to have shared this time with you. And, uh, may your story touch the person or the people that it needs. Thank you, Mitch. Thank you. It was lovely to meet you as well. Absolute honour.